Welcome to a new episode of Film Seizure at the Movies. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the Film Seizure podcast that you can catch each Wednesday morning with my cohorts Jason Oliver and Chuck Moore and my solo show Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon. You can listen to both of those shows at filmseizure.com. We begin this episode with the third part of the Adonis Creed saga with Creed 3. Uh, one of the greatest gifts that we've gotten from the aging Sylvester Stallone in the 21st century was his realization that Rocky was still an incredibly fascinating character with Rocky Balboa. Some, what was that? That was 2006 or so, I think, when that came out. What we couldn't have seen coming was just how interesting the world of Rocky truly became with the 2015 release of The Amazing Creed starring Michael B. Jordan. That was only backed up by a sequel in 2018 that proved two things. First, there was so much more that you could do beyond Rocky with this offspring of his friend and rival, Apollo Creed. And second... Stallone could retire the Rocky character gracefully and in a pretty touching style, as we saw at the end of Creed II. Now, after a delay from its original release date of November 2022, Creed III is finally out, and it's for Jordan's Adonis to shine on his own. The film accomplishes two things in the opening act. The first is to introduce the antagonist of this film, a promising young boxer from when Donnie was a teenager named Damien Dame Anderson. Uh, and he's played by Jonathan Majors as an adult. And to bring us up to speed over the last few years, as Adonis Creed himself unified the titles as a champion heavyweight boxer before leading into his retirement. From there, we see a contrast of how life went for those two teenagers as they ultimately matured into adulthood. The incident that we witness in the opening minute sent Dame to prison for 18 years. That incident, I should add, was kind of due to Donnie's temper getting the best of him. And what spun out of that was Dame was arrested for pulling up a gun on a couple of guys outside a convenience store after Donnie beat up a guy that the the two guys that Dame pulls the gun on uh, came in to basically get involved themselves. Now, Dame was arrested while Donnie ran away and was never caught. Dame was a local Golden Gloves champion and uh, was expected to be a phenom as a pro. Now, Donnie was kind of his tag-along at that time. But after that fateful night, Donnie would grow up to achieve greatness as a champion that Dame maybe should have been, and Dame was basically left to feel that Creed kind of stole his destiny. And that's basically the setup. Now, while retired, Donnie not only meets back up with the recently released Dame, looking for Creed to basically set things right by offering him his long overdue shot at a title, which is appropriately kind of ridiculous to, to request because Dame is older than Donnie and he's never fought professionally, no matter how much he claims he stayed in shape. But Donnie is also running the gym that he and his father worked out in and acting as a mentor to the latest champion, Felix Chavez. Now, when Felix is forced to take on Dame in a move that Creed initially looks to be, you know, looks at to be similar to Rocky's shot at Apollo and 
Donnie's own shot at Ricky Conlon years ago, Dame's brutal nature shines through and forces Creed to come out of retirement to truly set things right. Now, while I would say that the first two Creed films are absolutely two exceptionally special movies in terms of how they deal with being in this kind of rocky universe, and maybe second and third in the franchise only to the original Rocky in terms of quality, and no pun intended, punch, um, Creed 3 is a worthy sequel, but it does begin to travel in many ways into some of the usual ground that we've seen in movies like Rocky 3 and Rocky 4, where drama begins to infiltrate our hero's world and starts to basically push certain buttons in the character that makes him climb back into the ring to confront. Look, that shouldn't be taken as a dig on this movie um, and on any of the Rocky movies. I like the Rocky movies. I like the Creed movies. I like even the dumb Rocky movies. Um, they are part of my life and something that I wouldn't turn down too often if offered to be put into the old Blu-ray player. I'm just stating the fact that you don't often get the scripts like Rocky, Creed, Creed II, and the aforementioned Rocky Balboa had. And that's perfectly okay. Where this movie does excel uh, actually won't be found in its script. First, there's this great scene during the big final fight between Creed and Dame where it transcends the ring in the middle of Dodger Stadium with tens of thousands of people screaming around them. Instead, it comes down to two men alone in a ring fighting their demons, each other. Uh, there are things that come up with these characters that are part of their past. Uh, they see each other as those two kids who went to the wrong convenience store at the wrong time on the wrong night. There are jail bars that spring up around the ring, reminding them one, reminding one that he spent time in jail while reminding the other that he escaped that. Uh, the men scream at each other to let out their lifelong frustrations over the years of being run through a criminal system far too young um, and also having to deal with some abuse in their childhood. It's just a well shot scene that uh, that doesn't use anything other than what these two characters are feeling to show you how important this fight is to these men. It's a truly unique scene that I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it before in a boxing movie. And even better, the movie telegraphs how it's going to eventually do this. Earlier, um, as uh, fights begin, the sound is turned down on the ref's dialogue at the beginning of, uh, of these fights in the earlier parts of the movie, where the fighters each zero in on their opponents. Um, there are slowed down moments where fighters are keying in on weak spots of their opponents. And it all leads to that scene where the two guys are fighting each other inside each other's heads. It's, it's actually a pretty brilliant sequence in the movie. And the other thing that gives this movie something a little bit different than the two prior Creed movies is, you probably guessed it, Jonathan Majors. Holy cow, this guy is a fantastic presence in movies. The guy can act, no duh, but with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and Creed 3, he's so much more than an actor delivering his lines well. He's a 
damn presence in these movies. There are little things that he does with expressions or with a glint in his eye that make him this incredibly uneasy threat. When we see him for the first time in this, you almost feel sorry for him. He seems beaten down. He seems somewhat sad. You empathize with the guy and you also sympathize for him. And as Donnie brings him into his home and into his gym, you think that this old guy either feels lonely because he you know didn't have the opportunities or doesn't have the family that Donnie has or is just this kind of old possibly not in particularly great shape uh guy basically getting charity by being offered a spot in Creed's gym but there are hints that he gives that he is playing everyone. He's got a look in his eye or he lingers on a word or a reaction to something that he heard that reveals that he is indeed a very dangerous character. He is going to worm his way into Creed's world and take everything from him. And he does. It's a wonderful performance from a guy who's quickly becoming one of the greatest actors currently in film and TV. And what's also great about this is that they don't make him dangerous because he made mistakes in his life. They don't make him dangerous because he is freshly out of jail. He's dangerous because he's angry and he has frustrations and he sees that his dream was deferred and possibly stolen by the last person he expected that to be stolen from. His dangerousness does not come from the fact that he went to jail for 18 years. They don't play it like that. And that's incredibly smart um, because we could look at him and say, well, he's a felon or he's a criminal and we should be worried about him. We should shun him. No. That's not how this movie deals with that character. And it's very, very intelligent how they make you kind of understand why this guy is so angry. And there are times in which we think, did our hero screw up and did our hero hurt this guy? And in some ways, yeah. But there is this really kind of great way that they deal with that. Um throughout the movie and particularly in the climax that is lets us know that it's okay for everything that we felt and it's okay for these characters to feel all of these things. And it's actually an incredibly smart and kind of endearing way to treat people that were kind of cranked through this system like this. Now, in a lot of ways you can compare uh, Creed 3 to Rocky 3. You have a bruiser who wants a shot at the title and tears our hero down in order to get it. Now, whereas Rocky 3 has Mr. T, who looks like he isn't going to mess around, Creed 3 has this guy who very much is not messing around and does it in a far more subtle way. Um, that performance by Majors the way that the fight scenes are shot and all around very competent direction from Michael B. Jordan himself scores Creed three with a very high B plus in my book. 
Now, shifting gears into a little bit less serious of a movie, uh, let's talk about Cocaine Bear. Um, in the fall of 1985, Andrew C. Thornton II, a drug smuggler and former narcotics officer, was trafficking cocaine from Colombia into the U.S. Now, Thornton and his co-pilot accomplice abandoned their plane but not before dumping a bunch of luggage out of the plane over Georgia. Now, Thornton died after his parachute failed and he crashed his body into the driveway of a Nashville, Tennessee elderly man. The co-pilot did survive, but Thornton was dumping cocaine over the northern Georgia park called the Catahoochee National Forest. Um, most of the drugs were recovered by authorities, but what wasn't recovered, some of it was ingested by a young adult black bear. The bear likely died very shortly after ingesting the cocaine, and after an autopsy, it was shown that the bear was full of cocaine in its stomach and thus died of a massive overdose. Later, the bear was taxidermied by the pathologist who, was, uh, who did the autopsy and was gifted to the National Forest where it changed hands several times until finding a forever home at the Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Mall in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, fast forward over 35 years later, and Cocaine Bear is the star of her very own movie from Universal Pictures and director Elizabeth Banks. Now, if you saw the chuckle-inducing trailer for this movie, you are already well aware of what you're going to get with this. It's a funny, kind of silly comedy that is all about what that short time the bear could have survived being high out of its goddamn mind on coke could have been like. Um, now, of course, the... Uh, <laughs> The movie is based on the cocaine bear story from 1985. And yes, it is highly dramatized, but it's about as fun a mature 90 minutes you could have until, you know, the late spring and summer movies hit theaters. This movie is unabashedly R rated and packed to the gills with death and mayhem as uh, we see what might have led to Thornton's actual demise jumping out of his plane um, and then we get some real news coverage of the found packages of cocaine. And then we get the uh, bear going ape over the bag that she found. Now, once the first couple who encounter the bear are attacked, the movie barely takes time to slow down or avoid potentially very highly silly comedy moments. Now, it's a surprisingly large cast, too. On one side of the story, we have single mother Carrie Russell, who needs to go find her daughter and friend as they did sneak off into that national forest after bailing on school. On another side of the story, we have drug-smuggling kingpin Ray Liotta sending out his son, played by Alden Ironrich, um, and, and his number one dealer, who's played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., to basically retrieve the cocaine so that uh, he doesn't face the consequences from the Colombians for losing the shipment. Now, in between the two stories, there's a park ranger who's trying to seduce her wildlife investigator, a trio of what they call pop culture punk muggers, and a Nashville t detective trying to bring down the drug kingpin while dealing with the fact that he has a very boutique-style dog from a shelter when he expected something a little bit more manly and tougher. This is a wild premise, 
and a mostly funny comedy. Now, regardless if you're truly, uh, if everything truly works with the comedy and the characters and what have you, there are two things that Cocaine Bear has going for it. First, you really kind of start caring about everyone's stories and intentions. Yeah, Ray Liotta is a bad guy, but I care about what he does when he shows up because he's the bad guy. Uh, Jackson and Ironreich are uh, great in this and you kind of like them despite them being highly flawed um i mean jackson is a bad guy i mean he's he's a drug dealer but you do care about him you do like him um you do like carrie russell um and you want her to find these kids because damn it it's scary out there with a cocaine bear um it's good at giving you something to invest in you even care a lot about this bear when you discover that she does in fact have cubs um you have characters to root for and you do kind of enjoy watching the people basically get mauled by cocaine bear even the ones you don't really want to see this happen to um the other really important thing that this movie does is uh know what its expiration date is this isn't pretty easy breezy 90 minutes it can't support much more than that than those 90 minutes. On top of that, it's like Elizabeth Banks knew how to keep the energy going for that 90 minutes. And when it was time to bring the story to a close, she does so. You're in, you're out. You're entertained throughout. Um, I really do like what Elizabeth Banks has done as a director. You'd think that she might, uh, you know, have some pull toward wanting to do more quote unquote important movies being a woman director. However, I feel like she's kind of relishing in making movies that she wants to see herself. Her directorial debut was for pitch perfect Two, which was a sequel to a movie and to a series ultimately that she produces and basically launched that series for her follow-up got a, a bunch of undeserved panning charlie's angels that movie was far from perfect but it felt like a 90s woman-led action flick and i suspect that's exactly what she intended but here this is shot like a comedy thriller would have been released in the 80s or early 90s that gives the movie its unique vibe and the important thing at least for me is that despite the unnecessary you know the despite the necessary soundtrack to properly set this movie in its time frame and despite Carrie Russell's very 80s pink jumpsuit that she wears this movie is not drowning in its era and nostalgia that tends to overly distract me whenever i see something that is very dead set on being very 80s um, it starts kind of mishmashing everything in you start realizing that there's some things that you know there's a song that's playing or that there's something that they're drawing attention to that would not come from 1985 um, or before so it really takes me out of those types of things um, stranger things is a is an excellent example of something that i get a little too wrapped up in what time frame is trying to set itself in and how it's presenting that nostalgia. Um, but all of this, all of those things that, that cocaine bear does well, it is a definite recommend from me for those who just want a fun 90 minute R rated comedic jaws like romp. 
Um, most definitely this is getting a pretty affectionate B plus also from me. It was a little bit lower B plus than Creed three, but still very affectionately, uh, giving this a, a, a B plus just because it is something that you should get a little bit of fun out of. Um, and certainly, like I said, it does not overstay its welcome at all. And it's perfectly timed and perfectly, uh, put together as this kind of just, fun romp that that does exactly what it it sets out to accomplish don't forget to follow film seizure at facebook twitter and instagram so you can be made aware of new episodes of our various shows as they drop you can also follow us at podcast providers like soundcloud google podcast apple podcast uh stitcher tune in spotify and audible you can also listen to the show on youtube um, as we upload everything there as well. So you can subscribe to that. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk Scream 6, 65, and Shazam Fury of the Gods. So until then, don't forget to save me the aisle seat.